In October of 2014, there was two gentlemen who got unceremoniously kicked out of an all-you-can-eat restaurant for eating too much. It was a true story. It was two gentlemen who frequented a Mongolian restaurant in Brighton, England, who regularly showed up and ate so much food to such a degree that the manager said, they are eating me out of a job, and he kicked them out. In fact, on one occasion, he blamed them for destroying uh, one of the buffet stations in their frantic rush to gobble everything on the menu. That is verbatim what he said. And of course, this story stirred up a little bit of controversy because as a restaurant, are you allowed to say that you are an all-you-can-eat restaurant if there actually is a limit on how much you can eat? These guys thought the food was unlimited, but it was not. I also remember a few years ago, for the first time, hearing about the Set for Life lottery. Has anyone else heard about this? I remember thinking, that would be fun. The premise is that you will get $1,000 every week for the rest of your life. And now I don't play the lottery, but it doesn't stop me from daydreaming about what would happen if I won the lottery. And so I frequently would daydream. Well, what would I do if I knew just another $1,000 was coming in every seven days? And I would think about, I would budget it out. I'm better at budgeting in my daydreams than I am in real life. I was like, here's all the things that I would do if I won that. Of course, it was just a couple months ago, a couple in Newfoundland won the prize, and so I read the little PR blurb that shows up about them, and they actually decided to take the one lump sum as opposed to getting it over the course of their life. And I thought, well, that must be a lot of money if you can just get it for the rest of your life. I wonder how much it was. It turns out not a lot. turns out uh, that you actually don't get money for life. You only get money for 25 years. 25, 25 years from now, I'm only going to be like 60 years old. I budgeted for way more things <laughs> beyond the age of 60. That's not unlimited money. And of course, the, the, the money that they ended up getting was, was about $675,000, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's not going to set me for life. I have three daughters. I might get them through university when the time comes. Then I've got three weddings after that. Kate's wedding alone is going to be $675,000. <laughs> they should rename their lottery set for a while. Set for a little bit, maybe. It's not unlimited money. It's limited money. Everything seems to have a limit. How many of you know that every good thing seems to run out? It seems to run out at some point. Even the world, the planet, is running out of all of its things. It's good things. It was a few years ago that the big story was that the planet was running out of helium. Anyone hear that? Like, helium, what does that matter? Like, what's gonna, we're just going to have to lower our expectations on birthday parties. That's all that's going to have to happen. But apparently they use helium and, like, nuclear reactors and MRI machines and the whole nine yards. And so people were panicking. It was, we're running out of helium. Apparently there is a finite supply. In far worse news... True story, the world is running out of coffee. This, this is an actual thing. You can Google it and cry yourself to sleep tonight. The world is running out of coffee, and they're, they're declaring that in the next few decades, there will be a global coffee shortage. We are consuming it at a greater degree than we are producing it. And, and it's not even just how much we're drinking, but it's about how much space the world has that can actually grow the coffee and they can't grow it fast enough. And the scary part is that this is from an article in Business Insider from just a year ago that they're saying that the, the area of the world that is capable of growing coffee is going to shrink by half by the year 2050. That's only 30 years from now. I'm barely going to be 60 30 years from now. I'm going to have to use all of my set-for-life winnings on helping coffee farmers so that we don't run out of coffee. 
Everything runs out. Every good thing seems to run out. I mean, we knew that, though, because you live it every single day of your life. How many of you know that your money runs out? Seems to get smaller a little bit every day. You have to spend it. It doesn't replenish automatically. Um, and, and so sometimes we wish that it did. Uh, also, our time. Our time is very finite. You've only got so much time. And our days are full. Our calendars are busy. And I'm sure at some point, most of you in this room have said, I just don't have enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. I, I've run out of time. It all runs out. Even our energy runs out. It's not just tangible things like money. It's, it's our energy. And you go to work all day, you go to school all day, and it was a long, hard day, and a lot happened, and then you get home, and you are just completely exhausted out of energy, and there's 72 things begging you, you know, to, to get these things done. There's kids, and there's homework, and there's housework, and there's all these things. I just don't have enough energy. I'm just not going to get it done today. Every good thing seems to run out. We're running out of everything. Wouldn't it be nice if it didn't? Wouldn't it be nice to know that, that your money wasn't actually just going to run out? That your time wasn't going to run out? That there was actually enough resources to go around that you didn't have to worry and you'd always just know, I've got enough time today, i got enough energy today, i got enough money today. Wouldn't that be nice? Bad news, it's not ever going to happen. So instead, what we have to wrestle with is how do I best use what I have right now? How do I best use what I have? I think that's what God is asking us to do. He is asking us to steward the things that he has given us so that we will use them in a way that honors him. We believe that everything is from God. We believe that he owns it all. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And, and he, he is the owner and the creator of all of those things. And so we are not owners of all of those things. But we are simply managers of all of those things. And so we believe biblically that our time and our money, our talent, our resources, they are gifts from God, and he's watching to see what we do with them. How can I best use what God has given me? I mean, this all goes back to Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. God creates everything. He creates all the animals and all the fish and all the birds and everything that's in it, and, and then he creates man and he creates woman. And the first thing he tells them to do is, by the way, I'm, I'm making you manage this. This is kind of all yours now. Good luck. All of this that I created is what is going to have to maintain life on planet Earth forever. If I'm Adam, I'm looking out over all that creation on that day going, I better get good at this. I better get good at this. This is a huge undertaking. He's asking us to manage it. Now, that was just a few years ago, creation, you know, anywhere from 6,000 to 7 billion, depending on who you ask. A lot has changed in that amount of time. But the bottom line is that that kind of resource management has not changed. That God is still giving us everything that we have, and he is still telling us, this is what's yours, manage it wisely do well with what you have been given. Take care of the things that I have entrusted you with. And so like Adam, we should probably look at our life and all of the things that are in it and go, I should probably get good at this if this is what God is entrusting me with. And so today we're starting a new series that we are calling Resourceful, and, and this is kind of what we're going to be wrestling with. God has put us in charge of all the things that we have been given. How do we best use them? How do we use them in a way that honors God, that, that shows that we've got faith and we've got trust in him? It's all from him, 
And so we should be sure that we're living in such a way that it's all for him as well. Now, there is one twist, and it's good. It's a good twist for us, is that even though we run out of everything we have, even though all of our resources are finite, it's completely different when God is in the picture. This is what Ephesians 3.14 says. Paul is kind of reflecting on the goodness of God and how incredible he is. And he says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, that he will empower you with inner strength from his spirit. Every good thing runs out in your life, except God has glorious, unlimited resources. God is not running out of anything. There is nothing that God is in short supply of. There is nothing that he's checking in his bank accounts, nothing he's looking at on his spreadsheets thinking, we're running a bit low, I'm getting a little... He is overflowing and abundant in everything. And he is using his resources to empower us so that we can live in his fullness while we're here on this earth. So even though our resources are limited, our time, our money, our faith, our peace, our joy, whatever it is, he has an overabundant supply that he is willing to give us to empower us so that we can live with more than what we actually have for God. Like, what if I told you you'd actually won't run out of anything? Wouldn't that change the way that you live? Wouldn't you be more generous if you knew that all that money was just going to come back anyway? Wouldn't you be more giving with your time if you knew that you were actually going to get a whole bunch more? I bet we would manage our resources differently if we understood that God's supply is not running low and he is there to freely give so that we can live in his fullness now. And so I want that to be our framework as we walk through this series. And today I want to talk about the word return. And the word return basically meaning in in the finance world, there's a thing called an ROI, which is your return on investment. And what a return on investment is, it's kind of the benefit or the profit that you make on an investment if it works, (laughs) if it goes the way it's supposed to. Yes, I had to Google this. Okay, so just go with me. Imagine that you buy stock in pizza which you should, it's great. And pizza blows up in stock because it's great and you should, you should buy stock in it. And pizza blows up and all of a sudden your stock that you bought for $100 is worth $1,000 so you could sell it and you would profit $900. That is the return on your investment. Okay, that you, you put money in and you got money back and you're like, oh, that was pretty good. That, that's your return. And so we operate that way when it comes to our resources. We are always doing this. What is the return going to be for me? What am I going to get out of this? We are always asking ourselves that. We're always trying to gauge what our return will be. In fact, we're always asking the line, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Someone asks you, hey, can you do me a favor really quick? Oh, no, what's in it for me? We don't mean to. We don't even mean maybe necessarily that bluntly, but that's what we're thinking in the back of our minds. And I don't know if that's because we've just been raised in a way that we were bribed to to do chores by our parents, but my kids are the same way. Hey, you guys should really go clean the playroom. You should feed the dog, watch the baby. Yeah, well, what do I get for it? Room and board. Like you you get a roof over your head for one more night. What do you mean? What do you get out of it? And we are all wired and driven to think, all right, I'll do that if there's something in it for me. What's my return? Now, this isn't always a bad thing, but that's the the measurement that we use to figure out whether something is going to be a good decision or not. 
Should I sell my house and, and downsize? Well, you're, how much are you going to get for your house? What's the new house going to be? Is, is the return going to be worth it? Should I take this new job? It's got different pay, but it's got different hours. It's got different benefits. And so you kind of weigh the pros and the cons and you ask, well, what, what's in it for me? And so it's a way that we kind of make decisions. We are always weighing the cost of something by its return. But Jesus kind of comes along and he throws a wrench into that way of living because he asks of his people, what if I told you to give everything even if it meant you got nothing? What then? What if there's no return on the things I'm asking you to invest in? What if you don't get anything back right away? This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. He says, give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. That sounds like our world. And there's the golden rule, do to others as you would like them to do to you. But he goes on to say, but if you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners lend to other sinners for a full return. And Jesus ups the ante and he says, I want you to love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. And then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. In other words, God has lived this way for you. He has given his everything for you for very little return. Are you willing to love the people around you in the same way? Are you willing to love your neighbor? Are you willing to love your family? Are you willing to love your enemies in a way that you might not get return? You might not get it back. Will you still love people that way? What if there's no return? Hmm. That's hard. He goes on to say, there will be a reward, but it might be in heaven. Can you wait? See, if you're only giving now to get now, you might be missing the point of the gospel. We're not supposed to just give now so that we can get now. What if our reward doesn't come until heaven? See, the Bible asks us quite frequently to give of ourselves without expecting a return. The Bible, I mean, all through the New Testament especially, we hear, love your neighbor and do good to the people around you. How often have we personally neglected to do that because there wasn't any return in it for me? Well, I mean, I'd love to help out, but the, you know, the budget's really tight right now. Well, I'd love to help out, but I'm afraid that they would just waste it. I'd love to help out, but we're saving up for a vacation. I mean, I'd love to donate. I'd love to be of assistance. I'd love to give my time, but my calendar's too busy. In other words, there's nothing in it for me. I'm going to lose something, but not get anything back for it, and so I won't. What if that is the complete antithesis of the gospel? What if he says, give of yourself, and you might only get a reward in heaven. What if that's the way the church is supposed to operate? I want us to relook at the commandment really quick that is in the Bible to love our neighbor because I think we've kind of simplified it. We've generalized it to be a few different things. And so I, I want to look at it really quick. This is Galatians 5.14. It says, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, wait, hold it. He said the whole law. 
the whole law summed up and love your neighbor as yourself. That is a substantial, significant law. That was hundreds and hundreds of laws. That was many commandments, and, and you were summarizing them, saying that all of them can be summed up in love your neighbor. I thought Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God first and then love your neighbor. I mean, the Bible can't contradict itself, can it? So what one is it? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's just kind of a weird one-off thing where he really didn't mean the whole law. Let's go look at a different one, 1 Peter 4.8. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. Well, now it's the most important of all to love one another. Notice that the most important thing of all is to love God. It's actually the most important thing of all is to love each other. So now we've got, in in a most important of all, we've got the entire law. You know, maybe there's actually something to this. Maybe we need to keep on going. John 13, 34, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So now Jesus himself is even saying, guys, I have a new new commandment, a new law. Remember, these are the people who have followed the Ten Commandments and many other laws for centuries and centuries. And Jesus shows up and he says, by the way, it's actually just a new law now. Love each other. I want you to love one another. And that's the way the world will know that you're one of my disciples. It's not love God above all things and the world will know you're my disciples. It's love each other and then the world will know that you are my disciples. It's getting a little uncomfortable, isn't it? This is going against a bunch of things. This is not the way that I thought it was supposed to be. See, we emphasize all the time our need to love God, to always love God, to put God first, to prioritize God first. And, and yet, biblically, and, and all through the New Testament, over and over and over again, we're getting this word that above all, most important of all, the whole law is summed up in loving each other. It's found in loving one another. Well, what, what gives? I think there's something to this. And it's not to say that loving God should not be our first and foremost. Jesus himself said the greatest law, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. But then he says the second one is actually a lot like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, I think that the thing that can happen, what New Testament authors are trying to tell us about and warn us about what Jesus himself is trying to do, is he's trying to say, listen, it's possible to say that you love God first and completely neglect loving your neighbor. It's possible to think that you are doing the most important thing, because the most important thing is to love God, and I am loving God, and I am doing great. Mission accomplished. No one needs to say anything to me. And yet, all the while, you can be neglecting your own neighbor. And so the New Testament authors are saying, what if you actually loved your neighbor as the first and foremost because it will serve as evidence of the fact that you actually love God? What if that is the proof that you actually do love God? It's easy to say, I love God first, but that is a hard commandment to measure. That is a hard commandment to kind of give tangible value to and say, are you doing it? How do you know you're doing? What's the evidence that you're doing it? But loving your neighbor, that's pretty simple. Are you doing it or not? Are you serving or not? Are you giving or not? It's a lot of harder But see, the problem was that all through the Old Testament, there was a ton of people who said they loved God first and completely neglected their neighbor. That's what Jesus came to combat. That's what Jesus came to speak against. 
I've already dealt thousands of years of people who said they loved me first and didn't live like it. What I want is proof. What I want is evidence of changed hearts, and that will be revealed in the way that you love your neighbor. I mean, this was the problem of the Pharisees time and time and time again, wasn't it? I mean, these guys loved God first. They obeyed all of the laws. They followed all of the commands, and they missed the point entirely. And Jesus came along to warn us that I don't want you to be spiritual for religion's sake. I want you to have an impact on people's lives. I want you to truly love one another. And when you do that, the gospel actually works. The gospel actually spreads when there's evidence, when there's fruit. But see, it's harder. That costs us something. This is asking us to do something. And it might not have a return, at least that we get to enjoy, at least that seems super evident. See, modern Christianity, I think, has begun to frame the idea of following Jesus into something that's, well, what's in it for me? You should follow Jesus so that you go to heaven. You should follow Jesus so that you get salvation. What if, what if the gospel is less what is in it for me and more what is required of me? What if the gospel is less what's in it for me and more what is required of me? See, that's what Jesus came to say to the Pharisees, especially. The Pharisees were in it for them. They were in it for the return. The return they got in being religious was power. It gave them privilege. It gave them a sense of accomplishment and pride and well-being, and they loved it. And yet Jesus did not save his kindest words for them. He calls them out so many times. On one occasion, he calls them out because you guys remembered to tithe on the very littlest piece of income you got from your herb garden, but you completely neglected justice and mercy. In other words, you got the religion part right. You loved God first, and yet you were completely unjust to your neighbor. That's not the point. You got law one, but you missed law two, and in doing so, you also missed law one. He later calls them out for knowing the law perfectly, but using it to actually weigh down the people around them. He says, you took the law, the, the, the rules and religion that I gave you, and you, instead of loving your neighbor, you used it to hurt your neighbor. You used it against your neighbor. The gospel is for your neighbor. It's not to be used against your neighbor. He calls them out. You got law one right, but you missed law two. There's another occasion when he calls them out for Jesus was healing a man on the Sabbath. And they're so upset because he broke a law. And Jesus is like, do you not see the person? How many times has the church gotten so caught up in obeying the rule of the law that we forgot completely that this is all about people? We have upheld the law to the detriment of loving our neighbor. And in doing so, we have missed law number one entirely. See how easy it is to do. If the Bible simply admonishes us to love God first, then we'll think we're all doing fine to the detriment of our neighbor. So the New Testament comes along and says, actually, above all, most importantly, the whole law is found in loving your neighbor. What are you doing for your neighbor? Because it's in that that we will see that you also love God. If we love our neighbors first, it's evidence that the love of God resides in our hearts. If we're willing to give of ourselves to our neighbors, then it's evidence that God has transformed our hearts. We can say it with our mouths, but the evidence is in our love. 
Jesus himself pretty much came along and said that verbatimly. This is Matthew 25, 40. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In other words, if you really wanted to show me that you loved me, it's in the way that you loved them. And it's in what you didn't do for them that showed me how you felt about me. He says it a little more bluntly. Scripture does in 1 John 4.20. simply says, whoever says they love God but hates their brother is a liar. Yikes. But haven't we been guilty of that? Oh, I love God. Well, don't get me started on my neighbor. Oh, well, I love God. I go to church. Everything's hunky-dory. I'm tithing 10%. It's super. Don't get me started on refugees. Boy, oh boy. Well, what one is it? Because it's one. See, the proof of loving God is found in loving your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, your neighbor might be your own family. Your neighbor might be your worst enemy. Your neighbor might be your own city. Your neighbor might be someone who doesn't ever get to repay you. Your neighbor might be someone who never says thank you. That's your neighbor. God warned us about this back in Isaiah 58. He painted a picture of people who were eager to serve God and do what was good, and yet they missed the boat entirely. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 2. It says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? We've humbled, humbled ourselves, and you, you haven't even noticed. Right? He's saying, we, we're doing all these religious things. Why aren't we getting anything out of it? You haven't even said thank you. What's my reward for this? And he goes on to say, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? He says, really, that's all you are after? You wanted to fulfill your religious duties and do your obligations and show that you loved me, but in doing so, you were literally fist-fighting your neighbors. You weren't showing mercy. You weren't showing justice. There was no kindness there. You said that you were after the things I was after, but there was no proof in the way that you lived. And he goes on to say, this is what I'm looking for. Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked to clothe them, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. And then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. And you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. That is the kind of love that God is looking for in his people. Not just one that merely gives lip service to following the rules of God, but one that says, no, I am about loving my neighbor to a degree that I am, I am for justice. I am for mercy. I am for feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and giving shelter to the wanderer. That's what my love looks like. It's not just religious people saying, I love God most of all, and then not showing any evidence of it. 
It says the evidence isn't in the things that you're after. And so the question today isn't, do you love God? The question today is, do you love your neighbor? I love God. Are you feeding the hungry? Well, I love God. Well, are you giving clothes to those who are in need? Are you concerned about shelter for those who don't have any? People who are wandering that have no hope? It's not enough to say it. And the return, according to Isaiah, is that it's then that God will hear us. It's then that God will be with you. It's then that you will walk in community with him and have the relationship that you are looking for with him in the first place. The New Testament is very clear that this is the work, the sacrificial work of loving our neighbor, is giving of ourselves, expecting no return, but doing it out of a heart that has been transformed by the love of God. And so who is our neighbor? I mean, obviously, the easy Sunday school question or answer is to everyone, but literally for us, I mean, who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is Fredericton, right? That's our neighborhood. So let's talk about Fredericton right now. How can we love our neighbor? How can we love our city in such a way that we're for justice, that we're for feeding the hungry, that we're for giving shelter to those who have need? What are the tangible, practical things that we can do? Well, here it is. <laughs> I have a challenge that I want to put before all of us. Uh, there are 750 people in the city of Fredericton that would be classified as homeless on any given day. 15% of those uh, are what we would consider chronically homeless. That's about 110. Chronically homeless meaning that they're stuck in it. The other 85% of those who are homeless right now actually have uh, enough education or support system or wherewithal to, to kind of get a job, to pull themselves out of it. Homeless for them might be living at a friend's house. Homeless for them might be living in substandard living, but they've got enough to kind of say, okay, I, I could do this if I work really hard and utilize the help I've been given. But 15% is chronic. Chronic meaning once you get in there, there's almost no chance that you will get out. It means that you don't have the education and you don't have the support network. You probably don't have the health and you might have you know, ongoing mental health issues or physical health issues or whatever to the point where you, you're not ever going to get out unless someone helps you. See, without a home, you can't get a job. Without an address, you can't get government benefits. You can't get health benefits. You're probably not going to stay healthy, especially in the Maritimes. You're probably certainly not going to kick any of your substance abuse issues or whatever that might be. And so, that's the bad news. The good news is that the city of Fredericton has actually recently released their plan to end chronic homelessness in our city within the next three years. And that's, that's their goal. That's kind of what they're working towards. And that's certainly been an endeavor they've been working on for many years with lots of research and lots of work and all that kind of good stuff, uh, they've put together a mayor's task force on homelessness and kind of this coalition of nonprofits in the city that are working together, and they've come forward with a whole bunch of different ideas that they're planning to implement to end chronic homelessness, which is great. One of the main methods of ending this is that they are planning to do a $1.4 million project, and that is to build 40 housing units in strategic places in the city 
so that people can move into those and get an address and get healthy and get safe and get education so they can defeat chronic homelessness and kind of move on and get what they need. This is not their forever house, right? This is kind of that stepping stone in between that gives them the most important next step that they need. And so the city has contributed uh, all the land for this project and they have kind of undergone their initial fundraising for it and, and what they're looking for is for 40 partners to give $35,000 to build one of these units. 40 times 35,000 is 1.4 million. Uh, as of right now, they're at about halfway. They're at about 540,000, a little under halfway at this point. Uh, and really what they've been looking for, these 40 people, they've been looking mostly uh, for business people and you know, successful business owners and businesses, and that's who's really stepped up and given to it. Uh, as of the time of me writing this sermon, there wasn't any churches that had donated yet. Um, they're not opposed to the faith community stepping in. In fact, they're very open to it. And one of their suggestions is a better partnership with faith communities, which I think is awesome to hear from your city. There's obviously a lot of details and logistics to go with this. They're all on our website right now. Um, some Canadian cities have actually implemented these same things and have gone on to really great success. So, what I want to challenge us with today is being one of the 40 partners in our city that will contribute $35,000 and build one of these housing units to help end chronic homelessness. Like I said, I don't think the city is expecting churches to step up and do this. I don't think they're expecting a church in their city to just have a spare 35 k sitting around. I would love to be that church. I would love to be that church that says we love our neighbor, not just with words, but to the point that we will actually give generously and sacrificially with no return to ourselves because we love our neighbor. I want our city to know that there is faith communities behind them that will give of themselves to benefit their city. It is in our vision that we exist for the good of the city. That is not lip service. That is something that we believe. I believe every church should be a benefit to the city they're in. And I've said this about our city before. I hope Fredericton wants us to be here even if they never believe what we believe. I hope there's people in our city that say, oh man, that Jesus stuff is nonsense, but they better not go anywhere. Because have you seen what they do? And see, it's in loving our neighbor that they will eventually see God. Right? See, all along, we've been going, well, if we just give them God, preach God, show them God, well, what if we actually show them God by loving our neighbor? What if that's the return? What if the return on our investment has changed lives? What if the return on our investment is people that break the cycle of poverty and substance abuse? Isn't that a good enough return? And so I know that this is a large goal, $35,000, is a big chunk of change. Uh, we're going to up the challenge a little bit because we're actually putting a deadline on it and we're going to say at the very end of this month uh, is, it's the final weekend of our resourceful series, November 25, 26. And that is the, the weekend that we've got set aside to take this offering. We're going to do a one-time big offering and we're actually going to like hit pause midway through the service to do this. Say, so, all right, it's time to give. And we're going to raise this money so that we can love our neighbors in a practical way. And so I'm asking you not to give yet, 
but wait until then. Obviously, if you're not going to be here that weekend, come give when you can. Be sure to designate on your giving that this is for the housing project. Um, I know it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. $35,000 is just 35 people who can give $1,000. All of you are thinking, I don't have that. Well, what if it's, what if it's uh, 70 people who give 500 what if it's 140 people who did the math giving 250? I bet we have 140 who can give 250. Maybe it's 280 people who give 125. I mean, it's whatever you feel that God is asking you to give, but we're asking you to give generously. We're asking you to give sacrificially, knowing that there might not be a return on this yet. But who knows what heaven will look like? because of the work that we do. And so this is uh, one of those times where we're looking at our bank account and we're like, oh boy. It's one of those times as your pastor, I'm like, what have we just done? And then I remember Ephesians chapter three that says he's got glorious unlimited resources. So who's to say that we can't give our all and expect the owner of all to give back? Who knows what kind of blessing will come on our church because of the way that we give. Amen? Amen. So that is our challenge. November 25th and 6th. Start scheming. Start selling your stuff. Start looking at your bank account and do what you can do. And let's step up and love our city in a huge practical way for the glory of God.